I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Holy Scripture to Genesis 42, as was read just a moment ago, Genesis 42. As you're turning to Genesis 42, imagine with me for a moment that you were king for a day. If I were king for a day, I would, and you fill in the blank, what would you do? I would indulge myself with every luxury. If I were king for a day, what would I change? I would change every unjust law in the land. How would I rule or reign if I were the sovereign? I would banish my enemies. I would bless my friends. I would lower taxes. I would bring peace to the Middle East. And I think that I would be a good king. They say that absolute power corrupts absolutely. You know what I say? I say try me. Just, just give me the chance. In Genesis 42, Joseph was promoted to the highest position in the land of Egypt next to the Pharaoh. And he had just interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. He had just proposed a solution for, for global famine. And so Joseph was given charge of everything in the realm of Egypt, but because of the the humanitarian crisis of famine, people from every nation came to Egypt for food, and, and that propelled Joseph even further to a more powerful position among the international community as people came from near and far to to, 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 to get help and to find grain and, and food. And who should arrive in Egypt for food but Joseph's own brothers, the ones who had previously thrown him in a pit, remember that? While they ate their lunch in Genesis 37. Don't miss the irony of this. But 20 years has now passed and Joseph is in a position of power. He is the one in control. But I would propose to you this morning that Joseph didn't abuse his power. Rather, he demonstrated the character of one who understood and accepted the unseen hand of God in his circumstances. You see, it's one thing to respond rightly when we are powerless to change our circumstances. There's nothing we can do about it. We're powerless. It's another thing to respond rightly when you are king for a day, when you're control of you're in control of everyone else's circumstances. And so this morning I ask this question, how is it that Joseph could use his power, his authority, his sovereignty in the land of Egypt for his brother's better, betterment rather than his own bitterness? How could Joseph use his power for his brother's betterment rather than his own bitterness. And from Genesis 42, I prepared a message titled King for a Day. Let's pause for prayer quickly. God in heaven, we recognize there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And we're so grateful for the salvation we have in in Jesus, our wonderful counselor, our prince of peace, our everlasting father. And, and, And God, we're so grateful for the great exchange in which we are now robed in his righteousness. Lord, we come to the Holy Scripture now to to read it, to study it, to learn from it. We pray that your spirit would teach us and change us because of our study in Jesus' name I pray, amen.
Let's pick up in Genesis 41, verse 57, the end of chapter 41, Genesis 41, verse 57. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all lands. Chapter 42, when jo Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. So Joseph's 10 brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, Why do you come, sorry, where do you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. Now, Lest we miss the forest for the trees in our reading of this familiar account, I want to first highlight the prophetic fulfillment that is taking place in these verses. Number one, prophetic fulfillment. You see, this isn't just the record of a group of people fighting for physical survival by going down to Egypt to buy grain, but this is the story of fulfilled prophecy. In fact, we just read two fulfilled prophecies and we didn't even know it. Keep your finger in Genesis 42 and go back quickly to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, just quickly, verse number 13. Genesis 15 verse 13, this is God speaking to Abram. Then he, God, said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants, Abram, will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them for hundred years. Where would that be? That would be in Egypt. The global famine of Genesis 42 was ordained by God so that Jacob's family would eventually migrate to Egypt where they would remain for 400 years in fulfillment of God's promises to Abram in Genesis 15, verse number 13. I would offer you letter A, God's promise to Abram. And this morning I am telling you that God ordains world events to work his will in the lives of his people. And folks, every circumstance in your life, whether desirable or undesirable, every current event in the world today, whether desirable or undesirable, is the hand of God preparing the way and paving the way for his will to be accomplished. All of the events of Joseph's life up to this point, his being sold as a slave in Egypt, his promotion in Egypt, the worldwide famine, his brothers coming down to Egypt to buy grain. All of this is God's prophetic promise to Abraham so that the children of Israel would spend 400 years in Egypt. Now there's a second fulfillment of prophecy here in these early verses of Genesis 42. Turn to Genesis 37. Genesis 37, and let me show you another. And again, we study this just recently, but Genesis 37, beginning in verse number 6, I'll read quickly, Genesis 37, verse 6, so he said to them, that's Joseph to his brothers, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field, then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and indeed your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. 
And his brothers said to him, Joseph, shall you indeed reign over us or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told his brothers and said, look, I've dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, the 11 stars bowed down to me. So they, he told it to his father and his brothers and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. In Genesis 42, verse number six, our text this morning, Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to Joseph before him with their, their faces to the earth. This is a direct fulfillment of Joseph's dreams in Genesis 37. I would offer you letter B, Joseph's dreams about his brother, brothers. What is happening in Genesis 42 is bigger than world hunger, which is a pretty big thing, Right? This is bigger than that, for God is working his will, his way with his people. Now go back to Genesis 42. There is a sweet reversal of fortunes. Previously, Joseph's brothers controlled Joseph's fate. Now Joseph, king for a day, is controlling his brother's fates. If I were in Joseph's shoes, if I were in control like Joseph that day, when my brothers came to me, bowing down before me and begging me for bread, if I had the power that Joseph had in this day, when my brothers bowed down before me in fulfillment of my dreams, do you know what I would have done? I would have had them bow again and again and again and again. Then I would, have, I would rub their proverbial noses in their own proverbial dirt and I would have said, I told you so, ten times. Why do you laugh? I'm serious. <laughs> I would have exercised my authority. I would have banished them from my realm forever. And in the end, I would be the one to have the last laugh. But that's not what Joseph did. He concealed his identity and he feigned severity toward them in an effort to disguise himself from them. Genesis 42, verse number seven. Let's pick up in verse number eight. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, no, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, your servants are 12, 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today. And one, the other is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you saying, you are spies. In this manner, you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place unless your younger brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother and you shall be kept in prison and your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, you surely, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days. I call this number two, strategic mistreatment. Strategic mistreatments. Joseph accused his brothers of being spies in verse number nine, you are spies. And although he knew they weren't spies and they denied being spies, he accused them again in verse 14, you are spies. In fact, that's a theme that's threaded throughout this entire chapter. And it's a bit of sweet irony when you think of many years earlier, the, the brothers hated Joseph for spying on them and reporting their conduct 
to their father Jacob in Genesis 37. It was later in Genesis 37 that Joseph found his brothers feeding their flocks a second time. His brothers saw him afar off and they conspired against him to kill him for spying. And no doubt they said among themselves, here comes Joseph again spying on us so that he can tell father Jacob what we're doing. And so in Genesis 42 here now, Joseph's identity is concealed and he strategically presses them for information. And they tell him about their youngest brother, Benjamin, whom Joseph would have only known as an infant, if at all. Verse 17, Joseph puts them in prison for three days. And and while I can't prove it, I would like to think that Joseph put them in Potiphar's prison where Joseph had spent so much time himself. And, but I find it marvelous how that Joseph remained unknown to his brothers during this episode. Now think with me, Joseph is now 40 years old. He, uh, he probably gained some weight. He probably had a few more wrinkles. Perhaps he was balding. Joseph probably was clean-shaven and there's a visible difference between a bearded man and one who is his clean-shaven. Jo- Joseph is the governor of all of Egypt. So he's polished, he's professional, he's wearing the royal clothing of an Egyptian. And then Joseph is speaking in the language of the Egyptians rather than in the Hebrew tongue. But, but in all of that, Joseph had the discipline not to blurt out his identity and and impulsively tell his brothers who he was. But rather, he proceeded with great strategy and he put them in prison together, giving them an opportunity to talk among themselves about their circumstance, their fate. Look at verse 18. Then Joseph said to them the third day, do this and live for I fear God. Now, Joseph has just dropped a a big hint for them as to who he was. His statement, I fear God should have caught their attention. What would an Egyptian despot mean by the words, I I fear God? I believe that Joseph's statement there is a precise and technical statement used by those who would genuinely believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and their father, Jacob. So think back when Abraham was before King Abimelech in Genesis 20, he was trying to explain the deceit, his deceit in claiming that Sarah was his sister, Abraham said, I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place. They will kill me on account of my wife. This fear of God idea. And I would submit that the the phrase, the fear of God, or I fear God here could be likened to our expression, born again. When someone says, I'm born again, we understand that to mean they're a true believer in Jesus Christ. Nominal Protestants from mainline denominations in the West don't use the phrase born again. You know what they say? I'm Christian. They say, sure, I'm Christian. You're Christian. Everybody's a Christian. But the born again language, if someone says to me, I've been born again, then you know they understand the gospel as described in John chapter 13, where Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again spiritually. And so Joseph's statement here, where he says to his brothers, I fear God, should have caught their attention. But as Joseph continued talking, their attention was quickly consumed by their demand to bring Benjamin back to Egypt. Look at verse 19. 
If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and, and we should not, that we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. They are carrying a guilty conscience for all of these years. And Reuben answered saying, did I not speak to you saying, do not sin against the boy and you would not listen. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their, their eyes. And so as they're talking among themselves, they have no idea that Joseph understands what they're saying. He's using an interpreter, Joseph is. And they assume that Joseph could not speak their language, would not know of their references in verses 21 and 22. So after 20 years, their consciences are pricked by their crime. And hearing their conversation, understanding their reference to himself in verse 21, Joseph is overwhelmed with emotion. And he, he sneaks away privately to weep in verse 24. If I were king for a day, if I were Joseph in this case, I would have interrupted them at the end of verse 22. And I would have said, that's right, you guys. Today is your day of reckoning. I... I would have jumped all over them. I would have put this in their face. And I would have required their blood as they expected. After all, that would have been the vengeance of a bitter man with the authority and the power to command such a thing. But that's not what Joseph did. Verse 25. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, to give provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money and there it was in the mouth of the sack. So he said to his brothers, my money has been restored and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them and they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? I'll call this number three, generous repayment. There's prophetic fulfillment happening here. There's strategic mistreatment happening here. And now there is generous repayment. And under these new terms, the brothers would return home to fetch Benjamin while Simeon was retained. And Joseph's orders were that the bags be filled with the grain and the brothers' payment for the grain to be hidden in, in the bags. And presumably the money would be discovered at some point along the way as they returned home. Now think about this. What was Joseph's motive? I thought to myself first, his motive was to strike fear into their hearts. If that's the case, he was successful. In fact, he was twice successful in verses 27 and 28, as we just read. And then again in verse 35, after they returned home and the brothers found money in their sacks as well. If Joseph's purpose was to cause fear, he was successful. But then I thought, no, perhaps Joseph's motive was to keep them honest. If that was his motive, he was also successful. If we were to look ahead to chapter 43, the brothers had to return back to Egypt for more grain. And in chapter 43, verse 12, they prepared to return the money that was found in their sack, allowing for the possibility that it was oversight and they would be honest and they would return the money at times you've received the wrong change in your favor, perhaps from the, the cashier, and what do you do? You always have that ethical dilemma, right? Well, 
should I say something or not? It's really their error, right? So it's okay if I benefit from it. And uh, so maybe Joseph was trying to keep them honest. He was successful. But I submit to you that Joseph's motive for returning the money was much more simple. It was much more pure. Joseph didn't want to sell them grain. Joseph wanted to give them grain. Joseph wanted to supply the needs for his family freely and fully and anonymously. Say, Pastor, after all that his brothers did to him, are you sure? You might write, write down Proverbs 25, verse number one in your margin. Proverbs 25, one says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. If you were king for a day and it was in, within your power to bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you, would you? If you were king for a day, could you pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you? How would you use your authority, your power, your resource if you were king for a day? It was generous repayment. Verse 29, let me just finish the narrative. Verse 29, then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan and told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man who is Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But he said to him, we are honest men. We are not spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of one father. One is no more and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and, and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me so I shall know you are not spies, but that you are honest man, men. I will grant your brother to you and you will trade in the land. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack when they and their father saw the bundles of money. They were afraid And so there is a point of honesty. There is a point of fear. But Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead. He is, and he is left alone. And if any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. I would title this number four, Devastating Moments. I can't imagine the conversation there that moment as they shared with their father the circumstances of what had happened. And in our home, if there is big news to tell, it is the first one to get it out and then it's the loudest one to get it out and everyone's talking at the same time and if the story isn't told just right then everyone in our family corrects the other with the correct story to tell the way it really happened and it's total chaos. (laughs) But in in spite of the flurry and the frantic nature of this report there was devastation for Jacob. And initially, you find the devastation of verse 35. You see it there, the moment in which the the brothers discovered the money in their sack. But I'm going to point to a different point of devastation. That's in verse 36. Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me. How do you respond when you feel, as Jacob said, that 
all these things are against me. 36 is full of devastation. Jacob responded with blame. He blamed his son, saying, you have bereaved me. The word means to miscarry, to suffer an abortion, to be made childless. And I would in no way minimize the grief of a parent who's lost a child, but, but assigning blame, even if it is technically true, doesn't help to restore the loss. It only hardens the heart. And Jacob responded with blame. Folks, we're all prone to, to blame others for the hurt in our lives. And, and I've always said that hurting people hurt people. Such is the case for Jacob in this devastation. You have caused this to me. Jo Jacob responded with blame. Furthermore, at the end of verse 36, Jacob responded with pessimism. Pessimism. At times we feel like all things are against us. We feel hopeless and devastated. It's on those occasions that I tell myself, if I were king for a day, I would solve all these problems. I would change all these things. I would fix it if I had the power to fix it, to pay for it, to order someone somewhere to change my circumstance. I would. But if you're following my, my, my flow of thought here, I'm not king for a day. And you're not king for a day. And so we're, we're hopeless and we're helpless in this moment of devastation. But folks, God is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is your creator. He is your sustainer. He is your redeemer. And when everything is against you, remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? I've been blessed recently in my conversations with so many of you who would be justified in your pessimism. There's a lot of reason, cause, to be justified in pessimism today. You, you can't find a job. The doctor's giving you bad news. You're facing an impossible circumstance. But you have blessed me in saying, you know, Pastor, God knows he's in control. You've all but said, he is king for a day. He is king for every day. So I don't need to be pessimistic. Third then, Jacob responded with fear. In verse 38, Jacob had a legitimate concern. I, I don't know that I would send my youngest to another country as a bargaining chip for some bread. However, when you are walking in faith, trusting the unseen hand of God, you won't be paralyzed by fear. Jacob was paralyzed by fear, and he paid a high price for that fear. Think of this. Because of Jacob's fear, he delayed in sending his sons back to Egypt for more supplies, prolonging the imprisonment of his son, Simeon, and delaying his reunion with Joseph, his son. Let me conclude with this. This story, a boy's toy boat went out of reach on a pond one day. It started floating away. And a man at the side of the pond started throwing rocks at the boat. And the boy became horrified by what the man was doing and what might happen to his toy boat. Until the boy realized that the man was throwing the rocks over the boat. 
and making the ripples on the water to push the boat back to the shore and back into the boy's hands. Folks, many times we feel like God is throwing rocks at us, that everything is against us, that it is harmful and hurtful, but could it be, in fact, he is using the ripples of his sovereign circumstance to bring us to himself? In this moment of de devastation, Jacob thought that God was throwing rocks at him. All things are against me, he says in verse 36. But God was throwing rocks around him to bring his family back together. If you were king for a day, what would you do? If we were king for a day, we need to trust the king of kings and the Lord of lords for our welfare because he will take care of us. Let's pray. God in heaven, we feel like everything is against us. Lord, we sometimes misinterpret that you are throwing rocks at us. Lord, why is everything going wrong in our world? I pray that you would give us the eyes of faith to see your faithfulness toward us. God, you are faithful to fulfill your promise. You are faithful to care for your people. We can trust you as the king. I pray that you'd encourage our hearts with this this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.